Hi, welcome to Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. Today's lesson is called The Grace of God Educates Us. What kind of things does grace teach us? Well, on one side, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This was the message of Titus to the Cretan believers at the time. On the other side, grace is also teaching us to live self-controlled and godly lives in the present age. John is also going to be sharing a passage about the second coming of Jesus. Here he is with The Grace of God Educates Us, Part 1. Titus chapter 2, we're looking at verses 11 through 14. Paul had left Titus in Crete to work with these young fledgling churches, these nascent churches, these embryonic churches that had just been started in birth, and so they were all young and fresh, these church plants. And he had left Titus there to set them in order. And one of the aspects of helping these churches be set properly in order, to be rightly ordered church, was to help these church members break away from the ungodly culture that was influencing their life. Some of their lifestyles were beginning to look more like the culture of Crete than it was the gospel, which has come to produce a holy, antithetical, different type of lifestyle, way to live. And what had happened is these false teachers had come into the church who epitomized, Paul says in chapter 1, the worst of the Cretan vices. And at the heart, at the core of their false teaching was a separation of belief from behavior. They were separating theology from lifestyle. In other words, they were preaching what's called license. And Paul in chapter 1 verse 16 says that these false teachers profess to know God. They make a profession of salvation, but they deny him by their works. And these self-indulgent, licentious teachers were corrupting and destroying these young churches. Chapter 1 verse 11, Paul says they're upsetting whole households. The word upsetting means to overturn, to destroy, to corrupt. And so Paul, he leaves Titus in Crete to call upon all the members of the church, regardless of their age, gender, or legal social status, to pursue godliness. To pursue godliness in their ordinary daily living versus pursuing licentious, self-indulgent behavior in their ordinary daily life. So the question that we're looking at in verse 11 through 14 with that whole kind of big context is this. How is it possible to live a godly life in an ungodly culture? How is it possible to pull this kind of life off? In other words, how does Paul teach the church to combat the error of license? I can live however I want. God saved me. I've got grace. I don't have to obey. I can indulge. And so how is Paul teaching the church to combat this destructive error of license? And he gives us this answer in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2, which is the heart of this whole letter. Also, chapter 3, verses 3 to 7 is, is the heart. And what Paul does is he understood this. He understood that the proper preaching of Christ the proper preaching of the gospel, the grace of God, is always the best remedy to combat license. See, most people think that if you're living an unruly life, you need to give people a bunch of rules to get their life moral. Paul did not approach it like that. 
He gave a totally different approach. If your life is lost in license, Paul says, you have not understood properly the gospel. So that the the answer to license is to ground a virtuous Christian life in the education of grace. And so this is what Paul does. And so in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2, he highlights four saving actions of God's grace. And these four saving actions educate believers in their ordinary daily living to pursue godliness rather than ungodliness. So the last time we were here, we looked at verse 11, and this is the first saving action of God's grace, which is simply the grace of God saves. Look at verse 11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Paul personifies the grace of God. To talk about the grace of God is to talk about a person, Jesus. Grace is not a substance. It's not some kind of thing that God pours into you to make you a little bit better. Grace, the grace of God that has appeared is a person. It is Jesus. So to say that the grace of God has appeared is to talk about the first coming of Jesus and the whole event of his saving work in life. He says that he has appeared bringing salvation. That word means with saving power, Jesus in his whole first coming brought with him saving power. The grace of God educates us and saves to free his people. The saving power is to free people from their bondage and liberation to sin so that they can be enabled to pursue godliness. So the grace of God saves. Second, look at verses 12 through 13. This is what we're currently looking at. Not only does the grace of God save, second, the grace of God educates. The grace of God educates. Look at verses 12 through 13. The grace of God has appeared, past tense, that's Jesus. And some translations say training, but you can use educating. The grace of God has appeared, educating us to do certain things. It is teaching us continually to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And positively, it is teaching me to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The present age is now. The time that is in between the first and second coming of Christ, it is marked by sin and rebellion and self-indulgence and license, ungodliness. Even in the midst of a fallen culture, God came with so much saving power, it is educating me and enabling me on a daily basis, even in the midst of hard circumstances, to be godly. And so Paul personifies in verses 12 through 13 the grace of God as the believer's teacher. And this teacher guides believers into a new way of life. A way of life that is wholly antithetical in this time to the Cretan lifestyle and our time to American Western cultural indulgent lifestyle. Christ in this passage is the teacher. The believer is the student. The subject is godliness and the school is grace. So here you have the Christian and Christ's school of grace being educated by Jesus to live a godly life. 
So what does he teach us? What does this education consist of? Look at verse 12. The grace of God, first of all, educates us to renounce an ungodly life, is what we looked at last time. Ungodliness is simply godlessness, living like God doesn't exist. The grace of God, in other words, is renouncing ungodliness. The grace of God is teaching me as a believer that I daily, ongoingly, moment by moment, repent of my sin. This is what Christians do. Repentance is belongs in sanctification. And the gospel teaches me to repent all day long, every single day. I'm constantly repenting of sin. Second, the grace of God, Jesus, educates the believer to live a godly life. Look at verses 12 and 13. It's not just simply enough to renounce ungodliness, but quite never live godliness. You see, I have to continually pursue godliness. And so the goal of this education, which is the main lesson that the grace of God teaches, the goal of this education of grace is to teach us to live, look, self-controlled, upright, and a godly life in the present age. Now, we looked at this last time, but look at the last way the grace of God educates me to live. It teaches me to live not only in this present age with self-control, with uprightness, with justice towards people and with godliness in my life, a God-centered view of life, but it teaches me to live presently with an eye always to the future. Look what Paul says. Look at verse 13. The grace of God has appeared, educating us to live, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what the grace of God is teaching me. The thing that the lesson that the grace of God is teaching me is to look forward to Christ's appearing. I don't know how often you think about or look forward to the future second coming of Christ. This is what the grace of God teaches us to do. And it has profound implications for how we live now as Christians. The participle waiting means to look forward to, to await the realization of an event. Jesus, Paul says, who appeared in the past, will appear again in the future. And the grace of God, Jesus, this gospel, teaches me, instructs me to look forward to his appearing with a confident expectation. That's hope. This is what the gospel is teaching me to do. Waiting for our blessed hope. Hope is a confident expectation. Look over at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul has already introduced this theme of hope in the letter. He says in chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, that is the gospel, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. Hope is the ultimate goal of faith and knowledge of the gospel. Eternal life is the fullness of life that God gives us now in Christ by the Holy Spirit, which reaches its consummation at Christ's future appearing in his second coming. So Paul says those who place their faith in Christ alone are living in a confident expectation of one day being perfectly made godly glorification. Now, heaven is a wonderful place. I think there's a song called that. 
It is a wonderful place, and it's a great place to go. Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, I'm torn because I'd rather be with Jesus, but it's necessary for me to remain to help you. So heaven is a wonderful, wonderful place. But listen very carefully. Never speak of heaven to people as the ultimate home. It is not. Heaven is a wonderful place, but we're just passing through. Heaven is not my eternal dwelling. Heaven is a wonderful place, but it is not the hope of the gospel. The ultimate hope of the gospel, Paul says, is the confident expectation of the consummation of my salvation, the future appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that is resurrection. And the Apostles' Creed, the church, since the 4th century, or perhaps earlier, but we know for sure since the 4th century, in the Apostles' Creed, the church confesses, I believe in the resurrection of the body. This has always been the confession of the church, and this has always been the church's ultimate hope, blessed hope. Look over Titus chapter 3, verse 7. He says, being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There it is again. He's bringing up this idea of hope again for us in this letter. He says that our future hope is based on our present privileged status of justification. What is justification? It is God's declaration that my sin is forgiven and that I'm a perfect law keeper. That is justification. And based upon this present privileged status, given to me by the king and the judge, not guilty, but perfectly just, through imputation of Christ's righteousness to me, based upon that privileged status, Paul says, your future hope is certain. We are justified by grace so that, Paul says, look at Titus 3, 7, so that the purpose we are justified by grace so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Anybody in here ever sat down to a last will and testament and had something gifted to you after someone in your family died? Look what Paul says. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Based upon our privileged status of justification, our future is certain, our hope is certain, because of our status now, we become heirs. Do you know what an heir is? An heir doesn't earn anything. Rather, an heir is a recipient of a gift. An heir simply sits down to listen to the last will and testament read to him to hear the testator's state of affairs that the testator has chosen to bestow upon him freely. Christ, the book of Hebrews says, is our testator. He is the mediator or the testator of the covenant of grace, the new covenant, the gospel. For example, listen to this. In Matthew 26, verse 28, when Jesus inaugurated the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate this morning, when Jesus inaugurated the Lord's Supper in the upper room, listen to what he said. This is my blood of the covenant, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
You know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying the, the covenant, the new covenant, is like a last will and testament. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22, clearly sees this and teaches that Jesus is our testator who dispenses his inheritance as a gift upon all of his heirs. The author in Hebrews chapter 9, we don't have time to turn there, but I want you, I'll just summarize it for you. The author in Hebrews chapter 9 is contrasting the old covenant, which is the Mosaic covenant, with the new covenant, which is the gospel. And unlike the old covenant from Exodus 24, which is a ratification ceremony, in Exodus 24 chapter 8 in the old covenant, the people swore their pledge to keep the covenantal responsibilities. And based upon their pledge, Moses threw the blood on the people and confirmed their oath. That's not a last will and testament. But listen, Jesus in the upper room, according to Matthew and according to the author of Hebrews, pledges his own blood to confirm the oath. Jesus in Matthew 20 says, this is my blood of the covenant. Whose blood of the covenant was it in Exodus 24? It was the people's. It was their sworn oath. It was the sacrifice thrown on them. But the, you see, the death of Christ, the author of Hebrews says, is necessary to put God's will and the new covenant in force. It says, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all when the testator lives. Hebrews 9, 16. And so in contrast to the old covenant, the law which says, do this and you will live. The gospel is a covenant of grace. It is a pure gift. It is a last will and testament. It is Jesus saying, come and sit down and let me read to you the state of affairs that I'm going to gift to you. Going back to Titus chapter 3, verse 7, the whole point of this is that because Jesus has rendered his judgment in the present justified, not guilty, perfectly righteous believers can wait with a confident expectation of what is promised by the testator for them in the future. This is the sure foundation that we have to rest our hope on. This solid doctrine of justification, this declaration is the foundation upon which I rest my hope for the future. And Paul says that Christ's future appearing of glory is the believer's Blessed hope. Why blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? God bless you, right? What does it mean to be blessed, to be in a blessed state? Well, the term blessed is a covenantal term. It's a covenantal term. Um, if you go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 27 through 28, those two chapters in the Old Covenant are contrasting the blessings that would be given to Israel if Israel were to keep the Lord's covenant upon entering the promised land. And if they were to not keep it, then it was contrasted with the curses that would come upon them if they proved to be disloyal to the Lord. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, which Paul quotes in Galatians 3.10. But the descriptions of the blessings, listen, preceded and followed by the detailed and devastating list of curses shows us this. 
that blessing and blessedness to be blessed is much richer in Scripture than our English words, happy or happiness. Happy, happiness, being blessed, blessing, blessedness. Happy, happiness does not capture the biblical covenantal aspect of what it means to be blessed, waiting for our blessed hope. What is it? Blessed is about enjoying complete well-being as a result of being under the Lord's favor. Let me say that again. To be blessed, to receive blessing, to be in a state of blessedness is to be under the complete well-being as a result of being under the Lord's favor. What do I mean by that? Let me give you an example from the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, the ironic blessing. Maybe you've heard it. We do it at the end of the service sometimes. Listen to this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You see, what is the Lord's face? The Lord's face in the Bible is his presence. And the Israelites understood that the Lord's face to shine upon them would be his favor rests upon me. Causing his face to shine on his people means that the Lord comes to his people with his presence and he dispenses as a testator does kindness, blessing, favor, peace, grace with his presence. He causes his face to shine on his people with abundant blessing and favor. This is exactly what we find Jesus doing at the beginning of his sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, God present with his people in saving favor. Jesus, as he ascends the mount to preach his sermon, pronounces blessings on his disciples. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart and so on. Now, why is this vital to understand? Listen very carefully. It is absolutely essential to understand that Jesus does not begin the Sermon on the Mount with commands, neither with curses. He begins it with covenantal blessing, gospel. You remember Deuteronomy 27 and 28? Listen to how it starts in in, uh, Deuteronomy 28. In the Old Covenant... National blessing was held out to Israel as a condition for national obedience. So listen to the old covenant condition. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. 
pure condition. Pure condition of the old covenant. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, who is the mediator and testator of the new covenant, reverses this order. And he begins not with a condition, but with pure gift blessing. He reverses the whole order of the old covenant. And the blessings of the covenant, listen, are greater in the new covenant, greater than any blessing promised under the old covenant, because the reality and the, of the blessings in the new covenant are greater than the blessings of the old covenant. Hebrews 9.23 says, listen carefully, all of the temporal, physical blessings promised to Israel, including the land, the temple, the figs, the milk, the honey, all of it, every single bit of the old covenant, all of those physical, temporal blessings under the old covenant, Hebrews 9.23 says, We're just simply shadows and copies of a greater reality to come. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called The Grace of God Educates Us, Part 1. And it's from the series called Grace, the Wellspring of All Godliness. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.